After party time. Thank you. Thank uh, you. You go first. Oh, oh, okay. It just it just hit me now too. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, yes, this whole uh, archaeology geology thing is um, that that's how I work. I just throw all this stuff in, and then I extract, and then I throw more stuff. <laughs> And I ex extract and it's, I think from, I would not, the work I make would not have been, I would not have made that work if I'd stayed back East in New York and New Jersey, where I love dearly. I love New Jersey. I really do. Um, I'm probably one of very few people to really admit that, but I, I do love New Jersey. Um, but the work, I've been able to make has been totally informed by where I live. You know, I live with all of this erosion and change and rivers and blah, 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 all of that geological information. And that is how I make art. <laughs> my process has been directly influenced by my physical place that, that now that we're in after party mode right and turn the filters off knowing all of this could get wiped out let me say i 100 agree with that because i did one or two kind of cross-country road trips i'm like oh, i have to have my jack Kerouac years and you really do your brain changes based on where you are and i didn't love buffalo i didn't know that buffalo like new jersey could be a place i could love until i lived in beaumont texas which was yeah. within six miles of yeah, until like, you go away. Kind of <laughs> and so when I came back, I was like, okay, no, I, I understand there are roots here and there are things that are yeah. super important. Um, and I'm also, I'm, the reason I'm here is I'm taking care of an 83 year old dad. And back to the piece, the word curation, I think, is really important because you're talking about throwing at stuff and experimenting and being able to, uh, what worries me, but also, you know, I might be interested in is as the family archivist and it's old, it's an artifact, but the process of curation is the museum director has to decide what gets shown and what narrative may play out from that. So curation is this really important part of archaeology that, you know, you don't think about until you realize how much stuff isn't in the museum or at least isn't on display uh, as far as I got it with that one. Mm -hmm. Right. I like to throw out, if you're both okay with a little bit of extra time, um, we'll keep rolling for a second. Cause I like to throw out like an extra question, sometimes involving like a creative process just to get people's takes on like how they do things. Um, so I think this has actually worked out pretty well because my question for today, and I posted it on Instagram, uh, I guess yesterday at this point, um, was how do you arise? So that was uh, just a question on my mind uh, this past week for a couple of different reasons, but just the idea of 
okay, we got creating, and that was probably one of my questions in a previous session. It's like, okay, how do you get your ideas? How do you start? I think was my last one. But then also that's the other side of the coin. How do you cut? How do you change? How do you revise, edit? Um, I had a couple of responses, which I can share from Instagram crew, uh, but maybe somebody can offer a thought um, if you got a, a process, a practice, a method, um, I'll maintain that it's not a formula. I'm not a formulaic kind of writing person or editor, but there are tricks, there are patterns, there are things that work more times than not. So how do you revise? And I'll look up my, uh, my Instagram responses. So for me, it really depends on whether I'm writing poetry or prose, and if it's prose, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Because for poetry, I tend to not revise nearly as much as I do with prose. Um, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of my poetry is written on the spot and as a response or a reaction to things that happen. I once, when I was 16, I wrote a poem that is now published in the Unoya Review. I wrote the first few lines at my mother's funeral and I didn't really want to revise that much because that's what like made it so raw, the fact that I wrote it on the spot at my mother's funeral. So in general for poetry, I try not to revise too much because I think that can sometimes take away from the realness and the rawness of poetry. But for fiction, I, I also write novels and short stories and essays. I my favorite trick, and I saw quite a few people say this on Instagram, and I hear this all the time, but I think it's said often for a good reason, is I like to put it away and go back to it later and try to look at it with an objective point of view, almost as though I didn't even write it. Because I'm an editor at um, Beyond Queer Words, so I read writing every day, and I can pretty quickly sense whether or not I'm gonna vote yes or no in um, whether it's gonna be accepted at the magazine. So when I'm working on something, I like to put it away for a while and pretend that some total stranger wrote it and that it's a submission for a magazine. So that way I can really put my bias aside and really focus on what I can do to make it better. Um, I also like to make sure that when I do make revisions that I'm still being true to myself, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, because there's this temptation, especially in modern days, to write what you believe will be successful or what you know will sell commercially. But I think it's important to kind of stick to yourself even when you are making changes. So yeah, in general, I try to limit my revisions, but obviously it's necessary, especially for longer projects like a novel. But yeah, I think that's my main thing, putting it aside for as long as possible and pretending you didn't even write it, which sounds strange, but it's worked for me. Yeah, that's really helpful. A couple people said something along those lines. I'll try to get it 
accurate, so I give them credit. But I think that's one of those methods is let it sit somewhere else. Um, you're not engaging with it directly, but the ideas or the inspiration or the concepts, they're rolling around, they're steeping. And then when you do go back to it, the thing hasn't changed, but your ideas about it have maybe um, shifted a bit. So that's, you know, that's one thing. So that's great. And then the second thing I'll say is um, light touch. So that's, um, you know, I say that if, if I'm working with somebody specifically, my approach, if I'm working with somebody else is I'd rather have a light touch. You're the one who has the, has the experience and the idea and where it's coming from and all that stuff that I don't have access to. So you're the one who's, who's expressing it. And I just want to, I want to learn about what you're trying to express um, and then get to the accurate, you know, the accurate way, the way to, that you want to represent it. So I think that's, you know, there is something to that where you don't want to change too much when you're onto something. I guess that's when you know when you're onto something um, and when you're just trying to slog through something. Um, so thanks for that. I'll read a couple that I had from Instagram. One of them, friend of Wild Root Journal, we'll, we'll get this one out of the way. Rachel, she said, you know already, I just write the first draft all bad like, and then I make you read it, meaning me. So yeah, very funny. And then she has a maniacal laughter after that. So yes, I know. Um, but serious point to that little joke, you know, showing somebody that you trust, showing somebody that's willing to engage. Um, we probably all have tried to give our writing to somebody who doesn't really want to deal with it. You know, it's like, read this for me. And then they're like, yeah, did you read it? Like, no. Um, but having that back and forth, um, and I'll say I gave her stuff that I wrote that she gave me commentary on. So it goes both ways. Yeah, another one. I often revise as I'm writing line by line, sentence by sentence, but I also put, put work away and return later. Uh, so we'll give that one Victoria. Victoria said that. But yeah, the, in terms of prose, that's probably something I align with a little bit more in terms of, okay, write a little bit, make sure that's on track, and then write a little bit more. And then I'll read a couple more later. But uh, anybody else want to take this one up? How do you approach the cutting part, editing, revising, changing? I, I just want to say I'm really really impressed, Emma, that you pretty much don't revise your poetry because poetry, I think, is um, one of the most courageous forms to create. And there is, um, there's just nowhere to hide. There are so few words and each and every word has such weight. And, uh, you know, and it's patterning as well, right? There's that patterning going on. And that you, you're able to do that with spontaneity is in, it's very impressive. Um, so a question I would have is to have that level of confidence. Because a lot of people would totally second guess themselves. How do you feel or 
how do you feel that a knowledge of craft has allowed you to have that confidence and trust in your process and in yourself to create your your poetry? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. Um, I tend to see myself as actually not a very confident person. Confidence in both myself in general and my writing is something I've struggled with for a long time. But for my poetry especially, I tend to really just spend a lot of time on each line as I'm writing it. And I like can't move on to the next line until I'm very confident and set with the previous. So, I sometimes will literally sit down to write a poem and spend an hour or more on an opening line. So um, the the poem I was talking about earlier that I wrote at my mother's funeral, the first line is, I ask that my sympathy be served without sugar. And I remember um, at, at the funeral, my theater teacher gave me a journal and a pen and I decided sort of, on the spot, I'm just gonna sit here, everyone else is grieving in a more conventional way. So I'm gonna sit here and write my journal. And it took me probably half an hour to come up with that line. But once I get the first line, I can really sort of just start rolling from there. But for my prose, I tend to revise after the fact, after everything's done. But for my poetry, it's very much every line needs to be perfect before I move on to the next. And I do think I have some confidence in my poetry, especially over the years after having more publications. And it's definitely, I'm trying to learn to be more confident without the direct validation of publications because sometimes I have a author accounts on Instagram. Sometimes I won't even post something until or unless it gets published, but I'm working on being able to have that confidence. But the honest answer is that a lot of it is fabricated. But while I'm actually alone in my room at three in the morning writing poetry, I think a lot of confidence comes in the fact that nobody's watching me. There's this quote, I forget exactly what it is or who it's by, but it's right like nobody's watching because nobody's watching. And that really has helped me a lot because obviously when I share something on the internet or submit to a magazine, it's going to be judged by people. But when I'm writing by myself alone in my room, nobody's watching me, nobody's judging me, nobody's there to say like, hey, that line sounds awkward. So I have confidence just because I, my eyes are the only eyes that are judging my work. So that allows me to write more freely, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it does. Yeah, Thank totally. you. Yeah, and a little bit of a, a detachment or just a separation helps with that, if that is anything, just in the sense that, okay, this is done. And if you could say, all right, that's what it is, and I'm down to something next, something else, then it's not really a matter of confident about it or not, but it's like, accept it. That's what it is. Okay. Take it. Not, I'm doing something else now, and not kind of looking at it as like, okay, this is like, 
I'm so invested in this. My whole identity depends on if people like it or not. And like, I can't move on to something else if unless this gets accepted. So there is that kind of larger context, which I think is important. Yeah, I'll read a couple more uh, from Instagram. As a former, or in a former auditor profession, I turned on word audio function to see how the narrative's read. So that's one thing I have not tried, is hearing it from an actual, in this case, an actual program, but maybe even another person reading it. I guess I have done that once or twice. That's good. Uh, another one, and that's from Anne, or Anna, I'm sorry, Anna. Uh, leave it alone for a bit, forget, rewrite it all. That's a little bit of a different spin on it. That's from Esther um, in terms of, okay, rewrite it or put it aside and then just do it again. And then you can compare, maybe merge if necessary or use one or the other. And then one more from, didn't have a name on this one, but the account rabbit in the rain, uh, write it down, leave it a day or two, go back and edit language to make it a bit more concise. So that's one that uh, gets to the cutting part of it. I asked uh, either Kathleen or Emma, have you ever tried the uh, auto uh, voice where, the, where it, it, it reads the transcription of your text? Yes, I have tried that actually. I use that quite a bit. I like to picture, especially for my prose, that someone else is reading it. Like even, I think of like weird settings like in a classroom or at um, a library. I have to picture somebody else reading it and it being an established work and thinking, do I still like this? Which maybe isn't the best approach, but I definitely, I definitely like having it read out loud also because I have severe OCD so I need to hear it in order to know that I didn't mess up but I, I actually do that all the time yes yeah I thought I only discovered this within the last six months and everybody knows what it feels like to hear your own voice on a tape recorder oh that's terrible it sounds different in my head um but there was something uncanny but also kind of liberating because I had had handwritten something it was you know kind of a prose poem, let's call it, and I figured out I could take a picture of it with my phone and then it would read it back to me, and that was actually kind of great. It was it was a forced objectivity that I couldn't do myself. Oh, I'll put it in a drawer and I'll leave it alone, or have a friend read it out loud to me. Okay, that's the, but you're still your they're your friends, so they're, they're they're doing something as they read it back. This was robotic. And you could kind of hear different things. It was like a little bit of x-ray vision and I, I kind of loved it. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never done it that way. Uh, the one thing I was thinking of on that point is like, even just in a, a small group setting like this, if we each brought a piece, you know, and then somebody else reads it just in the workshop setting. So it is something the person who's reading is just seeing it for the first time, but they all are, also trying to read it. And so it's, you know, it's not a great reading, maybe unless you're maybe a better reader than I am, but it highlights, okay, this part flows, like there's no gaps in the reading. And then you get stuck maybe in a line or two, that's a little clumsy. You bring out the points where, okay, that's wordy, that needs to like change. Just because the person reading it and seeing it for the first time is getting caught up or just stumbling or something. 
Um, it's not a perfect, I wouldn't you know, make all your changes just based on one reading, but it does highlight you know, in, in a workshop context, like, oh, yeah, those two words together, like that's a mouthful, like that doesn't really work. Um, but on paper, when you're you know, putting words in a notebook, you can get a little bit carried away. So it, it makes that kind of more real and more tangible. And just that first reading thing was actually pretty enlightening for me. Uh, to, to actually be the reader, reading somebody else's thing, and then hearing you know something I wrote read by somebody else for the first time. So that was that was pretty cool. So I would offer that one. But yeah, if you don't have that option, press uh, press play on your program. That's really interesting advice to uh, to do that. To um, you know, if you don't have someone to do a table read to you know, or a group of people to share that experience with just to, yeah, have have the device to read it back. It's not doing you any favors, but it's also not trying to, it's not stumbling over words. It'll mispronounce some things. You're like, yeah. all right, well, I get yeah. that. But there is a weird comfort in the coldness, the literalness of it. And you part of your brain can say, oh, that actually, that didn't work the way I thought it would in my mind. And then another phrase will kind of unfold in a way like, yeah, yeah that's probably probably not right. So it works for kind of sentence to sentence revision. Um, Emma, you said you were working on some longer things like actual novels. Uh, that's where I fall apart. You know, I got two thirds of a novel rotting in a corner over here. Um, Still two thirds, you said that six months ago, Chris. <laughs> That's exactly should right. Be, That's should be five eighths. Okay, so I went from seventy-three point seven to seventy-eight point two uh, completion of a first draft, by the way. But I get uh, caught up with revision and kind of the storyline structural stuff. How, Emma, how do you navigate that? Because you've got to kind of step back and zoom out. Um, and I, I get into the second guessing thing Kathleen's talking about. Overthink it. Yeah, I definitely second guess a lot, especially with longer works. I have a novel self-published on Amazon that I started writing when I was 14 and then published when I was 17. So I kind of wrote it throughout high school and then published it at the end of high school. And the plot of it is just very complex. It's magical realism. So there's both the standard plot elements and then the magical aspect so i feel like whenever i revise a longer work like a novel or a short story every time i touch it every time i make a change i create a new plot hole like when i'm trying to fix one plot hole i just end up creating three more plot holes which is definitely frustrating um and i i spent <laughs> three years revising my novel before I published it. Literally put the first draft in 70 days. And then I spent three years editing it before I felt confident enough with publishing it. And I also worked with a professional editor and he ended up telling me to, well, not telling me, but advising that I cut the entire final chapter which was very difficult because it's it was my first novel. It was like my baby, but I listened to him. I accepted the fact, you know, I'm a teenager. I'm a relatively new writer because I was 17 at the time. Um, 
And I listened to him and I cut the entire last chapter of my novel and it really hurt to do, but it ended up making it better, I think. Um, after looking at it a few months later, I was able to step back and say, you know what, he was right, um, as editors often are. But I definitely definitely think the revision process for novels is really interesting because, like I said before, you change one thing and because it's such a long piece of writing, you it, it affects a lot and you have to go back to many different points throughout the novel. Even changing a trivial detail can end up being not so small or not so trivial. So I, I remember my dad telling me, um, my dad is a writer too, and he's my number one inspiration and supporter. And he told me at one point after like year two of editing my novel, he said to me, you're just gonna have to let it go at some points. Like, he said, I know this is so important to you. It's like your child, but you're gonna have to let it go or else the world is never gonna see it. And it was difficult to do, but I eventually did let it go and accept the fact that, especially longer works, they're never going to be perfect, um, whatever that means. There's always going to be something that you look back and you think, I wish I did this differently. I wish I used a different word. I wish I didn't include this subplot, etc." But if you keep obsessing over it, then you're never gonna, be able to actually share your writing with the world. It's just going to stay on your computer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say there's something for an inspiration to somebody like me uh, who I wrote and said, finish a bad novel as opposed to try to write a perfect novel that never gets finished. So the fact that you've gotten this far at that young, that's amazing. I really respect that. Well done. <laughs> I love it. I was going to say, there's something as far as genetics and writing. I was Mary Shelley, I think, was 19 when she published uh, Frankenstein. So you're having you beat her for her first novel in terms of age. Um, yeah. So, and like I said, sometimes it's just, okay, it's done now. It's, you know, so visual art is maybe a little bit different because it's like, or I mean, something like drawing or painting. It's like physically there and you got to step away. And if you, do something else, it's different. So yeah, I, I kind of see the, the the loop of trying to change it and then something else changes later and you have to, at some point, just say it's finished. Well, you have to let um, it go. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, perfection uh, is unattainable, but completion is possible. And uh, there's a quote I just brought it up on my laptop, oh, by nice. the uh, 20th century uh, screenwriter Saul Sachs. The worst thing you write is better than the best thing you didn't write. And I tell my visual art students that the worst thing, you know, that you paint or that you draw is better than the blank sheet of paper unless you're really doing a conceptual minimalist thing. Okay. <laughs> but then, then you have like a treatise to go with it. Uh, but, and I tell my students this, and I tell myself this as well, is to be reasonable about it. 
it may not be perfect, but be reasonable, get it to be completed, do another, keep making. And I think for, for me, I mean, that's why I work in series, you know, because I know that the one, one piece is not going to be able to express the totality of, of what I want to share and create about that subject. Uh, so there's a series of works and each time, you know, all of those iterations, I'm learning through each one. And that cumulative knowledge and experience, then uh, as a whole, I get satisfaction from it. So working in uh, an iterative way, in a series, is one way for me to address that revision question. Also, I think actually um, a body of work, I'd made it after a residency at the Morris Graves uh, Foundation a number of years ago, and it was very nice. I did some really nice, they were lovely pieces. They were very nice but they did not satisfy. And I was afraid to lose what I had. And I think for me, fear is the greatest limitation to my creativity. And so one day in this, I just ripped them up. I just ripped them all up because you were, it was like, hey, you're nice, but you're not doing it. It's not working here. So I ripped them up and I started playing with all the pieces and that got me on a track for some of the most satisfying work I've ever created. So back to that, um, the work that we were discussing today about destruction and destroyer, uh, you know, that that is a part of creation and of the creative process is ripping it down and building it back up in a new and hopefully more satisfying and authentic way without fear. Right. Yeah, the, uh, I referenced a uh, passage from Thich Nhat Hanh in the previous mm-hmm. issue, issue 13, and just that, that expression of composting. So I started kind of looking at it through that lens in terms of uh, you're not throwing it away, you're composting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that's a literal sense in terms of tearing something up and then using the pieces in another visual uh, you know, project. So yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your, your thoughts on the, uh, the editing comment. We could probably keep going, but we'll, uh, we'll end it here in terms of uh, going on long enough and uh, talking about our excellent pieces from issue 14 and then a little bit of extra in terms of some creative process stuff. So awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Great talking to you. And um, we'll talk to everybody again soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.